Well, good morning, folks. Um, nice to see everybody. You'll um, have noticed that Janet's not here this morning. Most of you will know that Janet tested positive for COVID on um, on Thursday. Uh, it's likely she picked it up at the Christian Institute because there's been a lot going around there at the moment. So um, uh, I've tested negative both Friday and today, and I'm very thankful for that. Thankful too that Janet's symptoms are not severe at the moment at all. She's just suffering very a lot of weakness as she does normally anyway. So so we're grateful that she's she's well. Um, a couple of things I would ask you to pray for. Um, pray for the upcoming trip to Malawi. My plan is to leave on Wednesday. But there's a couple of things that are important for that. One is um, Janet's condition. I won't be leaving her if I don't feel she's able to be left. So I would ask you just to pray that the Lord will give her enough strength to, to be able to be restored and allow me to go. Um, the second thing is I need to keep free from COVID before Wednesday, so I'm taking a wee bit more precautions than I would normally do. I'm not going to go out in the streets tonight. I'll be at meeting this afternoon, of course, but um, I won't be out in the streets tonight and I'll be not going into the jail on Tuesday. I've got a fit-to-fly test on Monday night at 8 o'clock, so I'm trying to keep very clear before then. So please pray for that. Stephen's already in Malawi. Um, I've had messages from him almost all the time. Things are going well there. Um, it's very hot. It's 35, 36 degrees and very humid at the moment. Uh, and next Saturday, the 20th, we're planning to have an open day to open the new Saidi site. And they're expecting about 500 people there at that time. There's a big outbreak of COVID at the moment in Malawi. So we just pray the Lord will preserve us. So we're going to continue our studies and we're going to be reading in Matthew and in, in Romans in chapter number seven. Please, first of all, Romans in chapter number seven. Actually, let's 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 read in chapter one uh, first, because <laughs> I, I like it simple, folks. I, I, I like it simple. And if it's not simple, it misses me. And in Romans chapter one and verse 16, we've got the key to unlocking the whole book, really. The book's about the gospel and how important the gospel really is, how it's important to get it right, how it's important to understand what it does, how important it is to, to be preaching it. And I was just thinking, folks, about the folks in Gateshead. If we don't take the gospel to them, who is going to do it? Eh? We need to make, make a, a good effort with that. But here's what he says. And, and so when I'm reading the book of Romans, I've got the gospel stuck right at the front of my mind. And I'm trying to fit everything into the gospel picture. Because Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And the whole book's about the gospel. For the first couple of chapters, we'll get the, the need for the gospel. Well, here we've got his confidence in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But the first two chapters will really be his explanation of why people need the gospel. And we need to grasp who needs the gospel and why they need the gospel. Every soul, us included, without Christ, was damned and destined for the lake of fire. And irrespective of our background or our religious responsibility, there's nothing in any of us that merits anything from God. Verses 
three and, chapters 3 and 4, it's more about the principle of the gospel. And he talks about two things. He talks about grace and he talks about faith. And where would we be but for the grace of God, folks? Eh? We need the grace of God and it's a gospel of God's grace that we need. And, and that the way God brings us into that gospel is by faith. And that puts the axe to all the... There's only really two religions in the world, isn't there? There's the Lord and by grace and through faith and then every other works-based religion, every other religion falls under the category of me trying to do something, whereas we are so grateful that it's by the grace of God through faith. The little section we've been doing recently is about the message of the gospel. You know, what's, what we must preach in the gospel about justification and, and being right before God. Last week, Deduzzi started, or the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking from chapter 6 and into chapter 7 about the demands of the gospel. The demands of the gospel, because justification leads to sanctification. And the demands of the gospel is not just that we trust Christ and have faith in him, but the demands of the gospel is that we do live a holy life. And justification and sanctification are so intimately linked. You don't live a holy life so as you can be justified. But because you're justified, you live a holy life. And in chapter 6, we don't have sin reigning over us anymore. We're not slaves to sin anymore. And in this particular um, chapter, we're going to think about the conflict of the gospel. That when we become Christians, actually something happens inside us that, that for the rest of our life causes a struggle. And a conflict, and that's where we're going to concentrate. The rest of the book's about the victory of the gospel and the mystery of the gospel and the practicalities of the gospel. So let's read this section that we've got this morning. And as we read it, let's think about this. It took me a long time to figure out what Paul was saying. And this is the way I'm thinking about it this morning. In these verses, verses 7 to 25, Paul is he's given his testimony, really. He's, and I don't mean the Damascus Road and the light from heaven and the voice and, and all that sort of stuff. No, he's, he's telling us what was going on in his heart when he, before he got saved and since he got saved. And so you'll see in this passage, there's two parts. There's a, there's a part that's in the past. He keeps, he keeps saying, for I had not known. And from verse number 7 to verse 13, everything he's talking about is in the past. And it's almost as if he's saying, this is what I was thinking before I was saved. This is what I was thinking because God's law was working in me, a consciousness of sin. And so right up to verse 13, he's talking about what's, what he felt in the past. But from verse 14, it changes. He's thinking about what he's feeling in the present. So if verse 7 to 13 is what he was thinking before he was saved, verse 14 to 25 is his experience after he's been saved. And everything you'll read in, uh, in verse 14 to 25, it's not in the past tense, it's all in the present tense. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I see another law working in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He's not saying, this is the way I was. He's saying, this is the way I am. And he's telling us that the Christian life is a bit of a struggle, to be quite honest with you. And so let's read those verses, thinking about that. And as we read them, see how much of these verses you can identify with. How much is common in your Christian experience? So he starts in verse 7. 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And that doesn't mean it's wrong to obey the law. It just means, is the law evil? Because the law is useless in terms of justification, and because these Jews were trusting in the law, does that mean the law was an evil thing? Paul says, no, 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 no. God forbid. I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law said, thou shalt not covet. And what he means is, it wasn't that he wasn't sinning, he just recognised what the sin was when the law came. You know, he felt this craving in his heart to have something that everybody else had. And when the law came, it said, thou shalt not covet. And he thought, that's what it is. That's what it is. That sin in my heart is covetousness. So sin doesn't, the law doesn't make you a sinner. It just helps you recognise what sin is. Do you see what what I mean? He's not saying he didn't know sin. He just says, the law was making me conscious of my sin. And he goes on to say, but sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Uh, What he means is there is, the more I got to know the law, the more instead of making me better, it used to make me worse. You know, because, you know, if you say to a child, there's some sweets, don't touch the sweets. What does does the the child do? It, It stirs within them a desire to touch the sweets. So the law doesn't actually help you not obey the law. The law actually kind of stimulates sin in you to break the law. And, and, and what Paul's saying is, the more I got to know the law, the more it stirred up within me this consciousness that I couldn't keep the law. And the more I understood the law, the more I understood the tendency in me was not to keep the law. The tendency in me was to break the law. That, that, that's what he's saying here. I know it seems a bit complicated, but let's keep going for apart from the law sin was dead what does that mean I wasn't conscious of it until the law came along I didn't recognise what it was for I was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived sin came alive and I died if you you read Pilgrim's Progress and the pilgrim's going through uh, the journey to the promised land. He reaches the place called an interpreter's house. And in the interpreter's house, he, he learns some really, really important lessons. And one of the lessons he learns is the interpreter takes him to a room. And it's a room that's just, just got dust all over the floor. And this dust is the knowledge or the consciousness of sin. And a man comes in with a brush. And the brush is the law. That's what he says, the interpreter says. And when this man starts brushing the dust that's on the floor, what happens to the dust? It just all springs up and and fills the room with dust. And so instead of the law removing the dust, it just spreads the dust everywhere else. It's like the dust revives, it gets life and it spreads. And that's what Paul's saying here. When the commandment came, sin just came alive in me. And I died. And I died. And so the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and it slew me. So what's he saying? The law was a good thing. It wasn't evil. It was actually a good thing because it stirred up in me the knowledge of my sin. The more I was exposed to the law, the more conscious I became of my sin, the more sin became alive in me and actually the more it became alive in me the more 
tendency I found in myself to do it rather than to avoid it. So, so, so what, what is he saying? Well, well, let's read verse 12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy, just and good. So the law of God is good. The law of God has a really important function. Why did God give the law? Well, there's a variety of reasons. God gave the law, first of all, to demonstrate what his character was like. You know, if you want to please the Lord, this is how high my standards are. But God never gave the law because he thought that people could keep the law and gain justification by the law. God gave the law to show people how much they couldn't keep the law and how much they needed the saviour. You know, when I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror. And I don't look in the mirror to, to, to find out how handsome I am. I, find out, I look in the mirror to find out what kind of damage has been done during the night so as I can repair it. Comb my hair, or, or I nearly said shave, but it's a long time since I've done that. But, you know, you know so, so the mirror is not to show me how wonderful I am. It's to show me how not wonderful I am so that something can be done about it. And that's what the, the, the Paul said. The law is like the mirror that's held up and it's good and it's holy and it's just and the law is a good thing. That's why I'm telling you that this is before he's saved. This is what he's describing about what's going on in his heart. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the Jew of the Jews. He was the law of the law. And he's telling us that with all his law keeping, instead of making him conscious that he was right with God, it was making him conscious that he wasn't right with God. That, that's what he's saying. And Forgive me if you think I've been trying to do sim- be too simple, but I need it simple to understand it. I think he's just telling us his story. The law that I pursued, the law that I des- delighted in, the law that was everything to me, it was holy and just and good, but it just made me more conscious of my sin than ever I was before. And the more I got to know the law, the more it stirred within me a need for something extra to the law. So, what am I saying? We've already learned that the Jewish nation were given the law. They should know the law. If you meet a Jew in the street, they should know the Ten Commandments, shouldn't they, really? And you can ask them the Ten Commandments. We had a young Jewish man deliver a parcel to us just this week. And I was trying to engage him in conversation about the Torah and the law. But he wasn't interested, quite honestly. He just wanted to make some money and move on. But the Jews know the law. But we've already learned that the Gentile, who maybe doesn't know the Ten Commandments, has the law of God written in their heart and their conscience. And so the law in 2021 has a really important function. It really does. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, have a really important function. We must present the law not as a way of pleasing God, but as a way of showing people how they need the Lord. And if you go through church history, you'll find people like Spurgeon and Wycliffe and and, and, um, uh, Whitfield and people like that. They preached the law before they preached the gospel. Because the law brought the knowledge of sin to a heart. Conviction of sin comes through the knowledge of the law. That, that, that's what I'm trying to say. So, was then that, verse 13, which is good, made death to me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. So you see what he's saying? The law has an important function. It's the law that exposes sin in a person's heart. 
And so when we tell people they're sinners, they don't understand what we mean by that, we have to present the law of God to them. And when we present the law of God, that which God is working in their heart by his spirit becomes exceeding sinful. So he's really saying, when I got saved on the Damascus Road, what was going on in my life was this. The law wasn't satisfying me. The law was actually stirring a knowledge of sin in me. It was making me feel worse rather than better. And that, that's really what he's saying. And he says this, for we know that the law is spiritual. And here it changes. It changes. Because the law is holy. The law is good. The law is uh, just. And we, we know that which is good. And so we must be careful, folks. I've heard many, many Christians say for the wrong reason, the law has nothing to do with the Christian. Nothing could be further than truth. Because look what he's about to say. He's got to say, for we know presently that the law is spiritual. What does that mean? It's from the spirit of God for the spiritual realm to minister spiritual good to us. It's a spiritual thing, the law. But I am carnal, sold under sin. What does that mean? Carnal. (laughs) In French, carne is meat. Isn't that right? In Spanish, carne is meat. In Romanian, carne is meat. It's a very Latin word or a very um, Greek word for meat. It just means flesh. He says, for I am fleshly. Fleshly. He's basically saying, I'm a human being. I'm a human being. And he's about to tell you that even though he's a Christian, he's still a human being. And because he's still a human being, because he's still fleshly, there's some problems that are going to happen inside him. Because when Adam fell, the whole of creation fell. And our humanness fell, if you understand what I mean by that. And, and it's not just our bodies are fell, our humanness fell. And we're, we're, he's saying, listen, even though I'm saved, so when a person gets saved, God makes them a new creation, right, okay? Brand new creation. And all things are, old things are passed away. All things are become new. Right? You're a new person in Christ. It's not that the old person's been patched up. It's not that the old person has been improved. The old man is dead. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the Bible says? I am crucified with Christ. And we're a completely new person. Our identity in Christ is not an old person patched up. We're brand new people in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. But our humanness still hangs on because we're in the body. Isn't that right? We're still human beings. Now, we'll get in the next chapter what God will do. We wait for the redemption of the, what? The body. So one day, all this stuff that still hangs on us because we're here and we're human and holds us back and causes us problem, God's going to finish with that when he takes us to heaven. When our redemption is complete, I hope you understand what I mean by that. Redemption is complete. You know that, isn't it? There's an aspect of redemption that's complete. You're never more saved than you are now, okay? But there's bits of us that still need to be um, redeemed and, and put in God. And our body, our humanness is our humanness is just done. It's finished. God wants away with our old man, our flesh, right? But it hangs on to us because we're still in the body. And he says this, for I am carnal, sold under sin. In other words, sin still, he's not talking about the law now. He's not talking about the law. He's talking about sin in us. 
And we are saved from sin, but because we're stuck in our humanness, that principle, that fallen principle of sin still works in our body, doesn't it? It's still there. We can't... The Lord could have taken us to heaven the, the, the minute we were saved, couldn't he? He could just have done that and just said, I'm, I'm done with it. Just to, but he hasn't. He's left us here for a reason. And he's left us here to glorify him. And because we've been left here with humanness, this thing that sticks to fallen humanness is stuck to us. We're just stuck with it until the Lord comes. And so he says this. I am sold under sin. I'm still struggling with sin. Still struggling with sin. That's what he says. Not sin because it's going to damn me to hell, but sin, well, let's read why he finds sin such a difficulty. Now, read this and see if you understand what he's saying. For that which I allow not, or that what I don't want to do, that I would, that do I, but what I hate, that do I. Let me read it again. For that which I do allow not, for what I would that do I, but that what I hate, that I do. In other words, I want to do good because that's good. And I don't want to do evil because I hate it. But do you know what happens? Instead of doing the good I want to do, there's a struggle within me because there's a tendency in me still to do the things I don't want to do. And he's really saying, in these next few verses, the Christian life is a real struggle. Because of our humanness, Because God has made us new people, we're going to have to have a battle for the rest of our life. Our whole Christian life is going to be conflict. Now, folks, this is real. This is real Christian life. Real Christian life is not plain sailing all the way, is it? Real Christian life is not happiness. Real Christian life is wanting to do the right thing and yet finding a power within you, sin still within you, that makes you do the thing that you don't want to do. And so he says this, If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it's good. In other words, I'm just saying what God has said about the law is right. I'm just doing the things I don't want to do because sin still dwells in me. And because the law is there, when I do them, the law convicts me that they're wrong. So again, there's a, a function of the law in the life of the Christian. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> this is not schizophrenia. This is not saying I'm a schizophrenic. At one time I'm a Christian, another time I'm a sinner. He's not saying that. He's just saying that, that when God's working in me and, and, and the new man is working and I want to do that which is right, there's this other thing in me. It's called sin. It's still there and it works in me and it's not me, the new me, that's doing it. It's the old vestige of the human nature in me that does it. It's sin that's doing it in me. And he's, Because John will say, that which is born of God doesn't sin. Isn't that right? That which is born of God doesn't sin. So he's saying, listen, now that I'm a Christian, instead of the law making me ignoring it, it's actually working in me to prove that I've still got sin there. It's helping me understand that the Christian life is a struggle. So he says this. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, we need to be careful. We need to not use these verses as an excuse to sin. 
you know, if we sin, we can say, oh, it wasn't me, it was the sin that was in me. So there's a, an excuse for it. There's no excuse for the Christian to sin because victory can be given. We'll read that one. And this is what he says. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Now he means, he doesn't just mean in his body there dwelleth no good thing. He means in his human nature there dwells no good thing. And because we're stuck with this old human nature until the Lord takes us home to heaven, there's nothing in our human nature that pleases God. In me dwells, my flesh dwells no good thing. So Christians don't just use the flesh in a sanctified way to please God. The flesh has got to be done with. It's got to be gone. Got to be gone. And it says this. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will or to desire is present with me, in me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Can you see what he's saying? A Christian really wants to please the Lord. Isn't that right? And if you don't want to please the Lord, you're probably not a Christian. Because that's one of the primary characteristics of the new birth. The new birth desires to please the Lord. And he says, you know, within me there is a will to present. But how to work it out? I just don't find it in my flesh. My human nature doesn't want to work it out. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And he says the same thing again. He says, you know, there's still this sin in me that what makes it difficult to do what I know I should be doing. And he's, he's just telling you, this is the Apostle Paul, folks. And he's telling you that he's struggling every day to do what's right. And here's me, a wee Christian somewhere in Gateshead, struggling to do what's right every day, thinking I'm the bottom of the heap as far as the Lord's concerned when it comes to Christians. And Paul the Apostle says, listen, get used to it. That's what Christian life is all about. Christian life is all about living in the good of what God has done for you and not allowing that sin that's in you to pull you in the other direction. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Isn't that what he said in in chapter 6? So he says this. I find then a law, verse 21, that when I would do good, evil is present within me. That, he says, I'm finding this principle. Have you ever done that? Have you ever heard ministry and thought, well, come Monday morning, I'm going to be different. And you get up on Monday morning, determined you're going to live better for the Lord. And before Monday night has come, you've just fallen flat on your face many times. Because sin still dwells. And Paul's saying, I've done that as well. I've got up determined because I've tried to do it in the energy of the flesh. I've tried to do it in the energy of the flesh. And he says this. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The inward man. The inward man is the new you. The new you. It's only used twice in the Bible. We, we quoted it actually, I think, on, on Thursday night. That the outward man perishes day by day. The outward man perishes. Our body decays. But our inward man, our new us, our new you, God's you, you new creation is renewed every day. And he says, listen, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And what he means is, my heart is just want to please the Lord. That's what I delight to do. 
But I see another principle in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members. In other words, you know, the new creation longs to please God, but this other principle is working in me all the time. And this is what he says. This is a kind of, this is a sad section, folks. It's almost like Paul lamenting how difficult it is to be a Christian. Isn't that right? He's saying, listen, I want to do good and I can't. And then he says, O wretched man that I am. I wrote this down today and I'm just going to make sure I get it right. Maturity, Christian maturity, means that you should sin less. That's just by definition. As we progress in the things of the Lord, we shouldn't sin as often as we we have before. But here's what it is. Christian maturity means we'll sin less, but Christian maturity means we'll feel sin more. So sin becomes more abhorrent to us. And things that were small sins suddenly seem like big sins. And so you'll never escape this consciousness of sin in your life, but as you progress in the Christian things, you'll sin less, but the consciousness of your sin will become more. It's a paradox, isn't it, really, in the Christian life? An old sister, I've told you about her often, Meg Lowe, who lived in Blythe, the holiest woman I ever knew in my life, blind. I used to go to her, and she would put her head down, she would say, oh, Jim, you have no idea how bad I've been this week. She hasn't left her house, right? And she's been witnessing all the time. But she's so close to the Lord that even when we sins come into her mind, she's so conscious of it. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, we're going to find out in chapter 8 who will deliver us from the body of this death, aren't we? We're going to find out in chapter 8. We're waiting for a day of the redemption of our body. And Paul's saying, listen, until the Lord comes, you're stuck with this struggle. You're stuck with this struggle. And we are stuck with this struggle, folks. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And he goes into chapter 8, and he says this. I'll just read chapter 1. He says, even though I'm struggling, and even though I find that I want to do right and I don't do right, even though I want to do correct and I sin, he says this, even though I'm struggling, listen to this. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So what is he saying? Even if you're a struggling Christian, you're a secure Christian. Matter of fact, every Christian is a struggling Christian, or we should be. But he says, listen, that struggle doesn't mean you're not saved. Matter of fact, that struggle is a proof that you are saved. There is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. I finish with these words. John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, right? This is one of his most famous quotes. I am not what I ought to be. You identify with that? I am not what I want to be. You identify with that? I am not what I hope to be in another world where we know that. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. We're not what we want to be. We're not what we hope to be. We're not what we ought to be. But praise God, we're not what we once were. Isn't that right? And we'll keep struggling. And we'll keep fighting. And we'll keep moving by the grace of God and the help of his spirit towards that great day.
when he'll take us home and deliver us. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the encouragement and the challenge it brings. We've all identified with this Christian struggle. We are so thankful, Lord, that you've put in our heart this desire to please you and we want to, but this sin keeps hanging on us. We're grateful for thy spirit, Lord, grateful for the word, grateful for the fellowship of saints, grateful for all the things, the means of grace, even to break bread and take a cup and hear the word. We're all thankful for these things that you give us to, to keep us going. And we pray that as we face this week, you'll give us the victory that comes through the Holy Spirit of God in our life. So we thank thee, Lord, for our time together. Commit ourselves to thee as we part, particularly those that are absent from us. We ask thee to bless them now in the Lord's name. Amen.